0: Job chapter 20, Uh, we're back to Zophar, his second speech, and this comes after the, the speech or the sermon from Bildad on hell, and then Job's response to that, and Zophar has been, if you can picture it, sitting there listening to all of this. He heard the first round of speeches, he heard Job's responses, now he's heard the second speech from Bildad. And he listened to Job's response, and he especially, his ears perked up for the very end of Job's response. Because if you remember, at the end of chapter 19, Job agrees about the nature of hell, he agrees about his own experience, He disagrees with the system. He says he will be justified. We have that beautiful passage. I know that my Redeemer lives. He'll stand on the last day. I'll see him with my own eyes. Even if I'm dead, somehow there's a way that I will see him. And it's got this beautiful, climactic, uh, uh, handles Messiah ending to chapter 19. Except that's not the end. Job has one more part of his response, which is to turn to his friends and give them a warning. And the warning of, if you don't have room for undeserved suffering in your worldview, then you don't have room for undeserved grace. And if you don't have room for undeserved grace, you're doomed. You're in big trouble. And you will end up in that place that you just described to me. So he gives them a warning and tells them to to turn, <laughs> to come back to God and abandon the system that they've made up of how the world Works and so Zophar is sitting there, listening to all this. And how do you react when you're in a group of friends or at a table and somebody is talking to someone? But you can tell they're actually talking to you or to all of you. And they're they're delivering this sort of indirect criticism or warning about what you ought to do or about those people. And you know they know you are one of those people. And that's what's happened here. Job is talking about those people. And he's talking to Bildad. But Zophar is sitting there and Zophar knows he's talking to me too. And he's right that Job is talking to him. And what do you do when that happens? Well, you probably get angry. <laughs> you probably uh, are not willing to take that silently. So, Pam, would you read verses 1 through 3, chapter 20? Therefore, my thoughts answer me because of my faith within me. I hear censor that insults me, and out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. He's not too pleased with what just happened. He's troubled. He's disturbed. Um, he, he and, and I love verse three, you know, it's in their language. It's not the way we'd say it today, but, but it's the equivalent of, I, I can't just sit here and listen to this. I have so much wisdom within me. The wisdom wells up and must come out in response to you. There's no way that I could just sit here and let you say this stuff without an answer, Job. And so he feels compelled to speak from the storehouse of his great understanding. uh, That's Derek Thomas's good phrase there. And the trouble, the problem, is going to be the exact same as it was before, which is they're not really listening to Job. They're listening well enough to hear the insults. (laughs) They're listening well enough to hear Job's claims that he is innocent they're not listening well enough to Job. They're not getting enough understanding to see that Job's worldview is actually the one that makes sense. And Job is pointing out flaws in the system. He's not just reflexively saying, I didn't do it, not guilty. There's a method to Job's madness. There's rationale and logic and biblical reason behind what he's saying. And that's what his friends aren't hearing. And... I'm sympathetic to his friends. I trust y'all are too. Because when you go to someone with a criticism or a critique or an accusation, and the first thing they do is to defend themselves, we don't often give their defense much weight. We just think, of course you're being defensive. And that's really, I mean, being defensive is the world's greatest accusation, right? Because what, what is somebody supposed to do? Say, no, I'm not? And then be defensive? What? And, and when someone is saying to us, I don't think you're right, I hear what you're saying. Job demonstrates great understanding of their argument. He really understands the system. And he says, I don't think you're right. And here's why I don't think you're right. And here's why I am blameless and why this is not what I deserve. But they're not hearing him. And, and the way you can tell they're not hearing them is basically the only thing that changes between the speeches is the volume and the number of insults. The arguments don't change. The logic and the language doesn't change. It's just maybe if I say it louder and meaner, you'll listen to me this time. And the, how much of Bildad's sermon about hell did Job agree with? 99% of it? The difference between chapter 18, the sermon on hell, and chapter 19, Job's response, are pretty minimal. Job agrees with the categories of what hell is like and what that experience is. And he says, I'm not just saying that in the abstract like you are. I lived it. I think you're exactly right about what hell is. So the point on which they disagree is the application, what that means for Job's life. And so Job has listened to this great sermon on hell. He's agreed with the theological content. He disagrees with the application because the system doesn't work and it doesn't line up with his experience. And so he says that. And then Zophar comes back and says, there's so much wisdom, why won't you listen to the sermon? That was an absolutely perfect sermon on hell and you weren't even listening to it. And you've got to figure Job, I mean, which is why we're going to get to a point where Job basically gives up on his friends here after this next speech. like, this is getting us nowhere because there is a... A lot of agreement about the theological subject. There's a lot of disagreement about what that means for Job and what that means in this case. And Zophar responding to Job doesn't change his content except in one way, and that's what I mean by louder and meaner. If you remember, which I don't expect you to, Zophar's first speech. Zophar was trying to do the kind of good cop, bad cop thing. He had some positive things to say about Job, and then he had these negative criticisms. He's trying to do the, what they call it, the, the criticism sandwich. You say something nice, and then you give the hard criticism, and you say something nice again. And he's trying to be pretty balanced in his first speech. But in this speech, Zophar makes no effort at balance whatsoever. He is going to focus 100% of his attention on what's wrong with Job and on, on the problem. And so that uh, leads to... Some pretty intense language and response here. Crystal, can you read four through 11? All right, so to this question, remember the system says immediate retribution. Good people get good things, bad people get bad things, no exceptions immediately. And that's been Bildad's argument, is no, the wicked do not prosper. That's not how the system works. And Job has come back many times and said, Bildad, use your eyes. (laughs) Look around. Does that jive with your experience And so Zophar comes along, and to this question of, do the wicked prosper? What does he say in this speech? When he talks about the joy of the wicked, what does he say about it? It's short short, for a very little while. And he doesn't mean that the way we might try to say it, which is that this life, compared with eternity... Is just a little while. And so the wicked who prosper in this life in the grand scheme of things... No, no. He means like Thursday. (laughs) The wicked can have a good Thursday. But Friday, it's all going to get pretty bad. The wicked can have a great 27. But 28 through 35 are going to be a nightmare. That's Zophar's argument is it's just for a little while. And so, Job, these exceptions that you're trying to give... They prove the rule. They're not actually exceptions because all of that is going to come crashing down. Now, what's the implication of that? If the wicked prosper for a little while, but in this life it will always all come crashing down, what is Zophar saying about Job? That's you! (laughs) You prospered for a little while, longer than you might have expected. But it always happens in this life. It will come crashing down on the wicked and you'll get what you deserve. Not just an eternity, now. And that's the category that he's in. And so he says, your your pride, he uses the... Hebrew poetry uses a lot of contrasts. And his pride ascends to the heaven, but he'll be consumed like fuel, which is dung. So that contrast between the heights of heaven the lowly depths of dung, Um, the expression Derek Thomas compares it to for us is, uh, the higher you are, the harder you fall. That's the point he's making, is that if the system elevates the wicked, it is only to magnify their fall, but it always will happen. And he uses three different, very short metaphors here. Verse 7, fuel in a fire, that's the dung, is the... They're basically burning cow patties or ox patties for fuel. And what's left of them after the fire burns up? Nothing. And so it will be with the wicked. They were there and then they were not. They were completely consumed. The second one, verse 8, he'll vanish like a dream. Dreams seem so real when you're in them. And then what happens when you wake up? It is completely gone. It has no existence. It has no substance. So will the wicked be. And then verses 9, 10, and 11, a man who disappears, somebody who had youthful vigor, somebody who had wealth in their youth, it will expire along with him when he turns into dust. And so just that rapid fire metaphors of anything you can think of, Job, that once had substance, that once had value, that once seemed like it was something, and it ended up as nothing, that's how it works with the wicked. It can seem like something for a while, but it's a very little while, and it will always come crashing down. But Job had a long period. Yeah. Right? Certainly not like a, you know, a day. You know, not so, a few days, yeah. You know, and uh, I wonder if they saw, thought during that period he was wicked, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, we'll actually come back to that, because okay. they, they, uh, during that period, they may not have thought it, but now they look backwards on it and do, okay, and so far, right, so we'll get... Revisionist is history, yeah. Okay. So far, we'll get very specific about that accusation in, in just a few verses. So uh, you're on the right track there. And don't get, I mean, I, I made it hung up on the time when I said Thursday or age 27. Yeah. The real crux of this position is the in this life. Okay. Right. Right. In this life, you will see blessing for the good, bad for the wicked, period. And, and, and the argument that they're making, which is the fundamental argument we have to put to death in our own minds, is that you can look at how someone's life is going and make a judgment about the condition of their faith or their soul. That is the, the that way lie madness, right? You cannot go down that path. Now, there's one exception to that rule, yourself. You should examine yourself that way. That doesn't mean you should, that you should come to the conclusion that because the circumstances of my life are bad, my faith is weak. It does mean you should ask the question, Lord, am I rebelling against you? Is there some sin that I'm not willing to give up? Is there... That line of questioning is essential in our own lives. And then we may come to the conclusion that Job comes to, which is, no, I'm innocent before the Lord. I'll be vindicated. He has a different reason or purpose for this. There's something going on in the heavens that I'm not privy to. That may be where you end up, which is great. We have to go through that examination ourselves. We should not go through that examination with everyone we encounter whose life's in a difficult circumstance. Right. That is, that is not good. Um, it's judgmental without all the data. Yeah. Right. Um, it, it, it lacks data for sure. So then in the next section, 12 through 23, Zophar so goes on this rant that when you do wrong, there's no ultimate profit there. And this time, instead of using a bunch of short metaphors, he takes one and uses it in a bunch of ways. Just use your eyes from verses 12 to 23. There's a category of words. There are words about a certain subject that appear again and again and again. Can you identify what that is? eating. Yeah. Look at mouth, tongue, stomach, belly, savoring, swallowing, spitting, vomiting, sucking, honey and cream, um, sweet and sour. Taste words. All of them. Eating, digestion, words. And so the point he's trying to get at is uh, Proverbs. Daphne, can you turn <coughs> Proverbs? I'll, I'll just read it. I'm, I'm there. Proverbs twenty seventeen says this. Food gained by fraud tastes sweet to a man, but he ends up with a mouthful of gravel. That's the point is making. Because again, Job's friends know biblical wisdom well. They are terrible at applying it, but they know the principles. And that principle is, is utterly true. I mean, I've said it in Sunday school. I said it in sermons recently that sin looks so appetizing. It's part of what sin does. It makes itself look appetizing. It makes itself look like it is better for you than obedience, than godliness. Oh, if I I do what God says here, I'm going to miss out on this. People are going to think that about me. I'm not going to be able to get this other thing that I want. If I follow God, it has all these costs. But if I just make this one compromise and do this one thing I want to do, even though I know God doesn't say it, look at all this good stuff that's going to come from it. Isn't that what sin does? Again and again and again. It tells us this is better for you. Genesis 3 Did God not say? I just, just, isn't this the one time where you could honor this other principle of God's by ignoring this really clear thing that He directly told you to do or not do? And go, yeah. And then we can sometimes convince ourselves that on the whole we are obeying God by disappointing God because, and here's everybody's favorite sentence: God would want me to. That's how we justify it. God would want me to be happy. God would want me to have this. God would want me to get this promotion. God would want me to make this extra money. God would want me to preserve this friendship. God would want... We deceive ourselves in so many ways because sin doesn't come to you in its ugliest form. Nobody would be attracted to that. Sin comes as this sugar-coated poison pill. And you look at it and you're like, I like candy. I mean it doesn't look dangerous. It looks looks pretty good. And you have, oh, sweet. Uh, that's pretty good. That's what sin does, even though it is filled with poison and death. And so that's so far's point here is that uh, it looks good and then you indulge in it and it brings death in the end and so you, you uh, savor the evil deeds you benefit you profit from the evil deeds at first but that outcome will never be what you get in the end I think it's interesting and not at all coincidental that drugs or anything we find ourselves addicted to, the chemical dopamine hit, is exactly the way the Bible talks about sin. And that cup and drinking and you need more and more and it makes you thirstier and thirstier and in the end it just kills you. And it's why our friend uh, Dale Stapler, teaching the equip, you know, in, in recovery they talk all about the addiction cycle and how that works, what the physiological triggers are for your addiction and how that, and he just crosses out the word addiction and writes sin and calls it the sin cycle because it, it is exactly the same. Um, we think there is something we want. We have this craving for it. We go through this period of justifying why this is the time that we should get it. Then we, we do it. We use whatever it is. And then we have that period of guilt and, oh, I shouldn't have done this. And then we just circle right back around to the, but I want this. And, then we begin. and that is the, the sin cycle. Yeah. Zophar concludes, Daphne, will you read 24 through 29? There's no escape for the wicked. And again, if we we spiritualize this, if we we draw this out across um, eternity, absolutely true. You will reap what you sow in God's ultimate working out of all things. But that's not what he means. He means now. This life. It will happen. There is no escape. Your deeds will find you out. You'll be exposed. You'll you'll reap what you've sown. It will be bad. And Zophar is so convinced about this that did you hear him? What Daphne read? He's done. He's done with Job. This is Zophar's last words to Job. He will not participate in the third round of speeches. He has nothing else to say. Job is not listening. The system is right. And Job will be found out in the end. And if you listen closely to some of the things Zophar said in there, and you you sort of piece together with some other things that he said. So like if you look at verses 26 and 28 in that part of the speech, and then you go backwards, look at 21 and 22. He does it earlier than that. And this is to Pam's comment earlier. Zophar seems to have a real problem with Job's wealth. And he's decided in his mind that Job must have gotten that sinfully. That that wasn't an accumulation because of blessing. That that was an accumulation because of cheating, because of evil, because of stealing, because of sin. And that's why this is all falling down on him now. And, I mean, what what envy must be at work for that. It's not, it's not so utterly strange to us. I don't say that as in, like, who in the world could think that way? No, I say that as somebody who sat in traffic and looked at the really nice car that I wish I had from the person on the other side and thought, eh, what if that bicycle just crashed and scratched the side of it? What would happen to this? Right? That's, that's level one so far <laughs> Yeah, when it's it all comes crashing right, down. Right, exactly. And that is that is Zophar and and Job at this point. So any questions on that part, what Zophar says to Job, and then we'll dig into Job's reply to Zophar. One last thing. I think that it, it almost seems like they're trying to um, just like they want they don't want by, hmm. oh, surely he's been really evil. There's are really evil sin things, and this could never fall upon me. Because I think we do that. Would that's a great so point. Happens, you kind of like go, oh, there probably was something, you know, and stuff, because, you know, I love this, you know. This because, and it goes back to the question on the board a few weeks ago. Who wants to live in a world where that could happen to good people? Yeah, that's the the thing God that we exactly. know exists as he reveals himself. We cling to that in the, in the way of faith that we're supposed to, but we also cling to it in the mm, almost health and wealth prosperity gospel of the harder I cling to it, the less likely that something bad will happen to me. And I'm sorry, you don't find that in scripture anywhere. In fact, you find maybe an inclination of the opposite, which is that the more closely you're identified with Christ, the more of his sufferings you'll carry down as you're buried with him. And, I mean, I wouldn't. And you don't want to think. I mean, you don't, <laughs> it, but you don't want to, I guess, really believe it. I, I... Well, that's why part of the, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but part of the sermon today, the whole sermon today, is about all of these options that we have God or not God. And there's all these other religions. And there's, how do we know that Christianity is the right religion? Why should Judah? have listened to Isaiah and turned back to God compared with the alternatives? Why should the Colossians have done that when Paul came back to them and said, hey, don't turn away from Christ? Why should we do that? We all have lots of options. And one of the things that always makes me chuckle about Christianity is if you were going to create a religion out of whole cloth, just I'm going to make one up to attract as many people as possible, this is the worst religion ever. Hey, great news. The closer you are to God, the more likely you are to suffer. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, and you're, and you're not allowed to make yourself suffer on purpose because suffering doesn't bring you closer to God that way. So now get out of like the monastic and the self-flagellation and penance and all of that. No, no, it doesn't work that way. We're just saying the more purely you follow and walk with God, you should expect pretty bad things. Uh...
1: Okay, and what can I do to
0: change that? Mm, nothing. Nothing. And what's the point of that? To get you to walk more closely with God so that you'll have more perseverance through more sufferings? Uh, sign me up. Like, I'll take two. They're small. This is no, no, no good there. All right, so Job is going to reply to Zophar. And he's not just going to reply to Zophar in chapter 21. Chapter 21 is Job, and and it makes sense because Zophar just said, I'm done with you, and the implication is everybody else should be done with you too, and everybody else is not done with him. We're going to hear two more speeches before Elihu comes on the scene, and then we'll hear Elihu's speeches, but this is sort of summary argument. This is in the end where... uh, Zophar as drawing the line in the sand. This is the way things are. This is the system. We've got nothing else to say to you. So Job takes chapter 21 as an opportunity to kind of go category by category or point by point through the accusations that have been leveled against him and the points that have been made. And he's going to try to respond to all of them. And What's important is the posture in which he does this. So let's go back to our question a few minutes ago about how we respond or how we treat someone when an accusation is made and a person needs to give a defense. So what's the difference between giving a defense, you know, I'm thinking about what you said, I'm examining myself. Maybe I've asked other people for their input. I've really thought about this. I've looked at scripture and I disagree with your accusation. I'm now going to defend myself against your accusations, which is what Job is doing. What's the difference between that, giving a defense, and being defensive? And it's kind of an arbitrary gray line, but the difference is really posture. It's attitude. It's it's attitudinal. (laughs) And how Job's attitude responds is going to dictate how persuasive some of these arguments are uh, and and Job is hurt. He's got, uh, wait, wait, do you have it open? Mm-hmm. Can you read uh, chapter 21, 1 through 5? Mm-hmm. And Job? You, you hear what he's, you hear his posture in that? He's hurt. You you're, Guys, you're making this about the system. I'm your friend. I, I, you're supposed to be my comforters. You're supposed to care about me. Bear with me. Look at me. Put your hand over your mouth. Stop lecturing me about the system for a moment. And think about me. Hear me. He is hurt by what? Bill, sorry, Zofar has said. This is a great, uh, Derek Thomas makes the point in his commentary on this. I go back and forth between this and the uh, Christopher Ash book that we're using. Derek Thomas makes the point that we all have to teach our children at some point about what was the dumbest expression we were ever taught as children. There were probably 50 that are equally dumb, but I'm picking on one. What's one of the most untrue? rhymes, moral lessons that children are ever taught is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never harm me. What what deranged, self-deceived lunatic came up with that one? Words can hurt worse. You, You heal from the physical wounds. It's really hard to forget words that were said. Really hard. That, that idea is nuts. And that's what Job is saying. It's, guys, this hurts. These, these arguments that you're making are not just theoretical. They're not just philosophical. They're about me. And this hurts. So please, he's begging with them, please pay attention to what I'm about to say. And then he goes through some of the categories of things they've talked about. There's a great. If I were a better teacher, I would have printed it as a handout or put it on the board. There's a great table in this commentary where Derek Thomas takes what Job says in this chapter, and then he shows you the chapter and verse for where the friends made that accusation or made that particular point. And Job's the summary. What were the friends arguing? And then in this speech, Job's response to that. So for example, the first one from verse seven, the friends had said the wealth of the wicked is of no advantage to them. We just read that back in chapter 21. I'm sorry. We just read that back in chapter 20 and Job's reply verses seven and eight. No, no. Sometimes their wealth is lasting. Sometimes their wealth provides for their offspring and Again, just sort of the smell test. We live in the same world in which Job lived. Don't you see that sometimes? Aren't there perfectly wicked people who don't just have enough money for some of their life before it all comes crashing down? They have enough money for all of their lives. It never goes away. And they leave some behind to their wicked children. And Job is saying, that's what I see. You claim that that wealth is of no advantage. That's not what I've seen. In verse 7 and then in verse 13 of chapter 21, Zophar had asserted that the wicked die prematurely. And Job has two issues with this in verse 7 and in verse 13, which is first they... They, many of them do live long lives and many of them, because of their prosperity, their wealth, their, and they sort of, uh, it's what we used to say about J. Vernon McGee being on the radio 30 years after he's dead, though though dead he still speaks. <laughs> right? their, their reputation, their wealth, their prosperity lives beyond them and testifies back to their lives. So the wealthy wicked have that going for them. They don't necessarily live short uh, lives. But also, they go down to the grave in peace. They can pay for the, the nicest uh, end-of-life uh, care facilities. They can pay for the extra pain medication. They can pay for the really nice funeral. They can die knowing that their family's provided for financially after they're gone. It's like the, even in their deaths, they have all kinds of these advantages. What are you talking about, so far? Verses 8 and 11, Job responds to Bildad's idea that the wicked die childless. Which, by the way, is a pretty brutal thing to say. We mentioned it back at the time, chapter 18. Job's children were all dead. Job's about to die childless. And Job says, not always. Verse 8, the chil- they see their children established around them. Verse 11, they send forth their children as a flock. There are plenty of wicked people who have lots of children. What are you talking about, Bildad? Verses 17 through 19, Job responds to his friend's argument that the wicked are blown away like chaff. And Job has a pretty sarcastic response here, which is, how often? How often does that happen? And He'd said that along the way, Eliphaz and Zophar had kind of tried to make the point back in chapter five that, okay, but if God doesn't punish them, then he punishes their children. Like there's never this big gap. There's always that more direct connection. And Job says, no, first of all, that doesn't jive with my own experience. Sometimes evil can last for generations. And second, this is uh, verse 19, even according to the system, that's unjust, If a person is supposed to reap what they sow, how is a person's child reaping what they've sown congruent with the system? What are you talking about? Verses 19, 20, and 21, his friends had made the argument that, uh, sorry, that is the argument, that God will punish the children if he doesn't punish the evildoer. And Job says, well, what about... Generations that increase in power and wickedness, which our minds as Christians, we should think, have you ever read the book of Kings? There's some pretty wicked kings whose children don't get worse things from God. They get more power, even though they become more evil. Job says this doesn't jive. And that doctrine, this is the argument in 19 through 21, in the system, that's morally unacceptable. That doesn't fit. Verse 22, earlier Job's friends had said they'd rebuke Job for asking all these questions of God. You can't seek out to understand God's ways, Job. That's not appropriate. Who are you to try to understand this? And that's why this wicked stuff is happening to you. And Job's response, this is verses 22 through 26, is everybody dies. You can't look at these outcomes and say that that says something about people's standing with God. You can't look at my death and say, yeah, see all these bad things you did? Because then what are you going to do when you look at the death of the truly righteous person? They die too. Everybody goes through this. And therefore, implicitly, of course the questions are worth asking. Why doesn't the world look like the way you would expect it to work if the God who says he is... Really is. And then verse 28. Is. um, His friends had made the argument. They they had challenged him. Show us a wicked man dwelling in a fine house. It cannot be done. That argument was made three times. Chapter 15, 18 and 20. Show us this theoretical righteous person. uh, Who's suffering. Show us this theoretical wicked person. Who's being blessed. Of course, Job doesn't actually have to look far to find one of those options. But Job says, talk to anybody. Talk to anybody. He says, talk to any traveler. Grab any passerby off the street is the implication here. Find any random person and ask them, hey, have you ever seen a really bad person with a really good life? And do you know what they'll say? Yes. (laughs) It's not hard. You don't have to do a bunch of research to get to the bottom of this one. He says, uh, verses 31 through 33, their funerals are splendid affairs because their ill-gotten wealth can pay for it. (laughs) You can have a really great funeral, a really great grave, a really elaborate ceremony that a lot of people come to because you can buy it, not because you deserve it. And so Job is thoroughly unimpressed with what his friends have to say. And uh, Brad, do you have... Uh, 21 verses. Read 22 to 32. Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that He judges those who are on high? One dies in his full vigor, being holy and cured, his pails full of milk, and the marrow of his bone moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes are wrong. For you say, "Where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked live?" Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face, and who repays him for what he has done when he is carried to the grave? Watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him. And those who go before him are innumerable. In new How then will you comfort me with empty numbers? There is nothing left that your answer to falsehood. We heard this argument before? Yeah, because we read Ecclesiastes. This is exactly what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. And this is part of the reason why I believe and I'm not certain about this. I'm telling you what I think. But this is why when I preach to Ecclesiastes, I'm of the position that Solomon does not come around in the end. That Solomon does not come back to true faith. And I think one of the major differences between Solomon and Job is that possession of humble reliance on God. Because they say exactly the same thing thing they see exactly the same thing they experience exactly the same thing job experiencing undeserved suffering solomon experiencing undeserved grace they're on this is exactly the same thing same questions same analysis but solomon ultimately concludes meaningless emptiness vanity of vanities and job Asks that question, but he will ultimately decide, God will do some convincing, <laughs> that it's purposeful. It is exactly what he sees. The, the level of purpose, why, what is happening here, is the level. There, there is, as we'll read from Colossians today, Christ is holding all things together. There is, in creation and in history, a design, a reason, and a purpose for every single thing that happens. Some of it we don't even think about because it's trivial. Why is the chair this way, right? <laughs> it doesn't mean there's any less design and purpose. Everything that is created falls under Christ having design and purpose. And when you look at history, every single event in every single life in every single moment of history falls under Christ's design and purpose. And we look at it and say, chaos. And God says, no, study more closely. So we pick a sliver like Job and we study more closely and we get all the facts and we say, oh, that's not chaos. That's cosmos. That's organized, designed, well-ordered, purposeful. It just looks like chaos when I don't bring humble faith into it. And that is what happens. And it's why the, his friends are wrong. You're allowed to complain the way Job does about the way God is working in the world. Lots of people do in the Bible. The psalmists complain about the ways God works in the world. The prophets, Habakkuk, has a whole book of grievances, complain about them. But they do it with this humble um, optimism this heart of faith that says teach me O oh lord show show me i know it has to be because of who you are but boy this isn't what it looks like and his friends are waving their arms saying don't look behind the curtain there's nothing to see here there is no incongruity everything is exactly as it ought to be and any sane person looking at the world says this is not how it ought to be and that's what happens so in closing Derek Thomas gives us four lessons the book of Job teaches us about, and, and any of the passages that deal with this sort of thing teach us these lessons. Psalm 73 does, uh, Habakkuk does, but these are, these are good things for us to keep in mind. One, is, I think I said Derek Thomas gives us four things, not my words. One, we shouldn't be confused, sorry, we shouldn't be surprised when we're confused by the way God deals with us. It, it shouldn't surprise us that the way God works in the world and the way God deals with us is confusing. God is essentially incomprehensible. He is God. We are not. That's where Job will get when God says the last word about these things is you cannot understand. You don't know what it's like to make the creatures of the deep. You don't know what it's like to say, let there be light, and it happens. You don't know what it's like to set kings on their thrones. So don't be surprised when you look at what's happening in the world around you and say, what? Don't be surprised. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be hurt by hurtful things or impacted by sinful things or confused, all of that. But we shouldn't be surprised that an all-powerful God operates his world differently than we would. He's just that Different. Second, alongside of that, to be troubled about the way God deals with us, to be troubled about the way God is working in the world, is not a sin. It is not sinful. To look at something and say with our hearts, that should not be. What we we mean is it ought not to be. What we mean is the creation is crying out. What What we're longing for is redemption. If we say that can't be or God isn't good, that's different. That's a different kind of accusation. What we really mean when the heart of faith cries out in those moments, the cancer diagnosis, the, the good person who dies early, the, the struggling in poverty, the, the, the child with a, with a lifelong disability, what we mean is, oh, I long for redemption because this isn't right. And that is not a sin. It is never a sin to long for redemption. Third, trouble is a time of great temptation. When there is trouble, Satan is nearby. And Satan wants to use trouble to make you distrust God, to make you doubt God, to make you turn against God, curse God and die, right? That's what Jesus is going through in the wilderness. He's hungry. He's exhausted. He's hot. And who shows up? Satan. And what does Satan say? Look, this path that God has for you, Jesus, where you become the king and all, look, I got a much easier one. Just do this one thing and I'll make you ruler over all this. You hungry? I'll give you some bread. Just do this one thing. That's what Satan does. And so trouble is a period of great temptation. So when we are struggling the most circumstantially in our lives, we need to be especially on guard at what Satan is trying to do with us. And fourth... We need to remember that the trouble can never win. The trouble can never defeat us entirely. God will keep his own. We will persevere because of him, not because of us. And as hard as that is to believe in a moment of trial, that's why we think about it and reflect on it in the moments of (laughs) non-trial. So that our, our faith is made strong so that when we go into those trials, we can say, this can't defeat me. I mean, even to the point of the Gospels, I, I don't mean ridiculous as a technical term here, but the Gospels' ridiculous assertion that don't fear the one who can kill. What's the worst they can do to you? You're like, oh, uh, they can kill me. That sounds pretty bad. I'm like, nah, don't worry about it. That's the worst they can do. And if that's the worst they can do, it's not so bad.